Hey there, Film Buds. Welcome back to the Film Buds Podcast. I'm your host, Paul. And I'm Lauren. And it's that time of year, folks. Uh, I heard my coworkers with children talking about it just earlier this week. Uh, it's back to school season. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. We, were, we were also in a Target recently Mm -hmm. and it had of course you know the seasonal section was switched out to back to school supplies no one was there yet it's a little bit early you know that's still a few weeks out for a lot of schools it's more mid to the end of this month um you know for some it's even essentially almost the start of next month um no yeah but it's that time yeah Um, yeah getting into, into the swing of things summer is is going to sleep yeah. Uh, you know, I imagine for some kids, uh, you know, it's year-round school, so I imagine that some of them might already be back, if that's the case. Well, doesn't year-round school just have, like, month breaks, and then they keep going? Yeah, it's like month breaks every two or three months or something like that. I can't remember what the what the metric is. Copy. Interesting. Um, uh... But yeah, so in general, you know, that means that teachers are preparing their classrooms, you know, getting syllabus together. Um, uh, New teachers are probably trying to make sure that all their paperwork is in order before uh, starting the job. So riveting. Yeah, it's exciting stuff. Bureaucracy! (laughs) It's exciting. And then, uh, yeah, kids are probably, some kids, I'm sure, are probably trying to last minute read that book that they were supposed to read. Oh, yeah, that was always me. Uh, but I'm also sure that some children have not started it at all yet, and will and, not. And, yeah, that's the, that's the key. It's, it's the won't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but with that in mind, we decided that we would go ahead and make all of August a back-to-school month. Yes. Um... But we didn't just decide to to do that. We decided that we would also go ahead and make each episode kind of themed around types of people that you see in a high school. So for today's episode, we're doing uh, teachers. It's a very teacher-centric, teacher-forward sort of episode. Um, But before we get too much into all of that, uh, we, of course... If we're if we are at the start of a new month, we are at the start of a new theme, which means that we closed out our our summer theme uh, from July. What were your thoughts on how July went? Um, I had a lot of fun with July. Um, it was it was a little bit of a, a month that we could kind of do whatever we wanted with, which is which is always fun. Like I really enjoy um, the the months that come with automatic themes, but um, it's always fun to to just do something just because and it was just i i really enjoy our um our heat metric of of how hot or cold a movie actually was um on our very personal opinion (laughs) based yeah but um isn't that the entire show you listen to our opinions this entire time this isn't new yeah i mean that's that's the whole point (laughs) (laughs) so um yeah no i really enjoyed it um I'm excited for back to school month. Um, it's it's definitely like a time when 
I would be like getting, you know, I, I have very fond memories of like doing back to school shopping with mom and dad and, um, you know, getting ready for a new school year and that always being the best dressed I was the entire year. And then I got lazy and bored and I didn't care anymore. So, um, you know, it was always exciting. It was like a fresh start, you know, it was like childhood's um, New Year's Eve, you know, where you're like, all right, this is it. I got to make a new impression on these people after summer, you know. No, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I was growing up, I moved around a few times. And so typically it was a move during summer. And so I remember a lot of, I mean, obviously more of them were, were at a familiar school, but I remember, you know, a handful of start of the years where it was at a new school in a whole new environment with entirely new faces, you know, fresh start in every sort of sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did that when I moved, you know, of course, obviously when I first started school in, in Morgantown elementary, and then I actually moved halfway through third grade Mm -hmm. or part of the way through third grade. And so then I was that kid who comes in at the end of a year, essentially, uh, and then summer started, and I remember that summer in particular, you know, not having really a lot of, like, people to hang out with because I came in so late that I didn't really, like, form a lot of, like, bonds in particular with anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we moved again, uh, middle school mm-hmm. to, to North Carolina. Um, that was the summer of Revenge of the Sith. Uh... <laughs> you keep this crap you know <laughs> and, I think, and i think also katrina oh <laughs> oh that's fun yeah sort of a pendulum there for you Ooh, exciting uh and so yeah that's you know it was always an exciting time and i remember when i was a teacher for a brief period i found the start of my first year particularly nerve-wracking mm-hmm. uh it was a brand new experience. I was teaching kids exactly 10 years younger than I was at that moment. And I was, you know, not from the community at all. I was in a very small town. And so I also felt very much like a fish out of water. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the new teachers that were coming to that school were from that area. And I certainly was not in any particular way. I stood out uh, like a sore thumb comparatively to a lot of the other new teachers. Um, but it was it was a nerve-wracking experience, you know? And, like, that first day, like, having to do your first lesson ever was uh, pretty weird. But, honestly, the magic of it also kind of wears off by by about the end of the first day, on a certain level. Uh, uh, and then the work just, like, sinks you in. You know, and not in, like, a, you know, not in the magic of it, I guess, fades away, but, like, you you get used to the routine when you have to do it seven times in one day, you know, kind of a thing. Oh, yeah. You, you really snap into, obviously not a perfect rhythm, but you get used to just being in front of those people, I think, pretty quickly, or at least I did. Um... So yeah, it's a it's an interesting experience, and different classes have different attitudes. It's such a schools are such a weird environment, 
And I think that that's why they're so cinematic. But we can talk about that later. Mm -hmm. Um, So, like we said, this whole thing is is a back-to-school month, and this first episode is focused on teachers. And we decided that we would go ahead and do two movies that kind of use similar structures, but are tonally very, very different. Yeah. And one is is from the teacher perspective, whereas one, the teacher is, is just sort of our focal point. Mm-hmm. And we decided to do, obviously, if you're listening to the School of Rock and, uh, and Dead Poet Society. You gave away our secret. <laughs> Gosh. Uh, <laughs> And so, they're they're both sort of favorites of mine. I grew up watching both of them. I I love both Robin Williams and Jack Black. And as far as cinematic teachers, they were both ones that came to mind for me very, very quickly mm-hmm. as performances that stand out. Um, before we jump too far into that, I thought that I would give y'all... Um, just a few little interesting fun facts about education in America. Uh, this is going to, per the usual, be very, very broad. Even broader, actually, than usual, because I'm just sort of hitting some some interesting general comments. Um, <laughs> and, and a few very specific factoids that okay, I found interesting. Okay, I like general <laughs> comments and, and specific factoids. Fantastic. Um, so, first off... Um, Education was obviously less common, you know, and a lot of people that were literate were really only literate in the sense that they could read the Bible. Because for a lot of people, that's the text that they were taught to read with, if they were taught to read anything. When every book has been burned other than that one, it's kind of the only thing that you've got. And so, but also a lot of impoverished people in the time, didn't have time to be educated. No, because they were working. Exactly. And so, for a lot of people, education was much more of a luxury. Mm-hmm. Um, and and really only if everyone had the time or you could hire someone, or if you did live in a town that had a school. Some parts of New England did have mandates about schools, even as far back as colonial times, about, you know, each community having a school, but also the enforcement of that is, I'm sure, very loose. Mm -hmm. And I'm also sure that the quality of that experience is very differential. What? (laughs) And so that's sort of how education was formed early on. Um, And of course, as colonies and, and U.S. territory spread you know, certain areas, newer colonies especially, didn't really have, newer territories didn't really have the same laws in place that New England had. And so in places like the South, where you did have a lot of agriculture, you definitely did not have as much education because it was also not mandated in any kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, regarding higher education... America's oldest college is Harvard. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was originally not called Harvard. It was sort of renamed after a donation from a wealthy individual. Named Harvard? Yeah, his last name was Harvard. Oh, wow, that's fancy. 
and it was originally sort of began in preparation and 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 function in September eighth, sixteen thirty six. Um, and the whole purpose of it was to create liter- literate clergymen. Oh. Uh, your school education was very up and down. Mm-hmm. Your clergyman was your most consistently literate person in a town. Okay. Uh, and so our first college was founded with the intent of creating literate clergymen. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the character in The Crucible, the, Mm -hmm. the, like, preacher that comes to town that gets bamboozled. Yes. He's... Uh, Whatever his name is. If I'm, he's, he's a Harvard man. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh. So, New England is much bigger into education in general. Um... Beyond that, part of the other issue is that um, a printing press had been around, but for at least the first few years of colonial America, uh, the first few decades, a printing press did not exist in the colonies. You know, Mm -hmm. if people started coming to the colonies in the early 1600s, late 1500s, early 1600s, um, a printing press wasn't actually established until 1639. Okay. So, also just in terms of people having access to books and that sort of thing, pretty much unless you brought it over or had it shipped over, it's not like anyone was really cranking out materials to be read. Other than the Bible. And so, and again, that was probably getting shipped over. So a printing press didn't get established until 1639, and guess where it got established? New England? Harvard. Oh, how fancy. Just keeps getting fancier and fancier up there. So, uh, and the first printed item considered by most was something called the Freeman's Oath. It was a pledge that all property-owning men over the age of 20 had to take to live in the colony. Oh. Yeah. Where are these American history books? I'd read them. Uh, so... Some of the early printed documents were um, catechisms, some school books, legal documents, sermons, and almanacs. Okay. Uh, and this, you know, obviously more printed press, printing presses got added over time and that sort of thing. Um, and more schools did crop up. More more emphasis was put on schools in certain places, especially during certain periods. You know, you hit the Enlightenment in the 1700s. And so you do have some of a shift towards education, but one of the big shifts for education in relation to children comes really with industrialization. Because with industrialization now, there are more families that don't necessarily have to work all of their children on the farm. Mm-hmm. And so at least up until a certain age, potentially, you have more children who are having to be cared for, and so they're going to school for those purposes. You also do have people who are now prospering more in general, and so they're able, you know, on a certain level, to send their children to school in ways that they weren't able to before. Um, and then, of course, 
as as time progresses forward with industrialization also of course comes the shift in emphasis towards um child labor laws to protect children and get them out of mines and factories and things like that mm-hmm. um and so all of that sort of starts to shift and get children into schools. Um, but then, of course, also industrialization starts to make printing easier. Uh, and the printing press is, is now an even more capable process. So even more materials of all kinds are able to be printed. Um, also, by this point, New England has included... Um, private high schools, which become the precursor to prep schools. Oh, like, um, okay. Which are intended to be a direct pipeline to the Ivy League academies that have cropped up in New England over this, this period of time. Copy. Um, education in the South, however, did of course not remain particularly much of a priority. Um, and you did, of course, still have issues exacerbated by the Civil War and Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, eventually later on, um, racial inequality as Jim Crow and segregation started to also impact schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and so education also became a battleground for... Because education, everything happens in a, in a web, you know, it's all interconnected. And so education was, of course, a battleground for all sorts of other issues at the time. And one of those, or has always been a battleground for relevant issues occurring at the time. And so segregation became one of those as well. Schools became segregated. Um, And um, then, of course, by the mid-20th century, uh, segregation, of course, comes to an end in schools with Brown versus the Board of Education, which, uh, happens in 1954, which starts to begin the wave of desegregation across schooling, um, which is a very fraught process, as anyone will tell you. Mm-hmm. And so it didn't fix certain things, you know, and it caused other rabbit hole issues. Um, and as a fun fact for the creation of certain things, it wasn't until 1953 that there was a Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. And it is not until uh, 1979 that it is divided into the Department of Education. Uh, and actually, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare was the first cabinet position created since 1913. Wow! Wow, my goodness. Boom. So those are some education factoids for you. So education is a really interesting thing that I could have really gone down a lot of very deep, different rabbit holes with. But classrooms have always been reflective of their time. Um, And some of the fraught issues of any time happening are also being discussed and and targeted at, you know, children and that sort of thing. Um, you know, 
there were think about like duck and cover mm-hmm. right that's the nuclear fear penetrating the classroom mm-hmm. uh so you you see these kinds of things dare yeah the war on drugs entering the classroom so that's very reflective across the history of education and so um it's a very complex place schoolrooms are very complex places teachers are in uh, once upon a time, it was referred to as en loco parentis, uh, which was essentially like in acting as a parent. You know, you were the temporary custodian and guardian of these children for a period of time. That was kind of what was used for a, a blip as justification for corporal punishment in the classroom. And so hmm. you were acting as their guardian. Mm-hmm. And so... um it's a very complex thing, and over time, education has been well-funded and defunded, and programs have been added in. Part of the reason we have so much math and science is because of the space program. And so... And look at how much stuff we're still doing in space. And the Cold War, and that sort of thing, and wanting to be able to create bigger and better in the face of the Russian menace. And so... And the, and the, the Red Menace at large, right? Both... Maoist China and, and uh, you know, communist Russia. And so those were some of the ways that it penetrated and seeped into the classroom. And so it's always gone through these ebbs and these flows of, of being, you know, fraught with policy, even though at its core it's intended to be a place where children are able to grow, ask questions, develop, um, be exposed to new ideas in a safe way, and, and flourish, and figure out who they are as they become an adult, because at 18 they're going to step out into the world, and they need to have some sort of foundation of what they are before having to do things like decide if they want to go to college or sign up for the military or, or, or become a janitor and be happy with that, you know, but you have to go and create some sort of foundation of a rounded whole person that also arrives at all of these thoughtful decisions at a place of having some capacity of being an autonomous person. By the time that they turn 18 and graduate, you should have some foundation of what functionally looks like the beginnings of an adult. In theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a perfect world. <laughs> in theory. Yeah. Um, but in actual practice, you know, especially it's a very difficult job. You know, it's very underfunded. Um, and teachers have a very hard time. And I think the teachers definitely get cast into different camps. Um, and so for our first teacher that we'll talk about, we've got, of course, um, the inspiration you know, I mean, like, this is the stand-and-deliver kind of teacher. You know, with mm-hmm. Dead Poet Society, you've got the exemplar of inspirational teacher. And so let's go ahead and, and start jumping on into our first teacher, Mr. John Keating, in Dead Poet Society. Let's. All right. So the film was released June 9th, 1989. It's two hours, eight minutes. It is PG. Uh, the plot is Maverick teacher John Keating 
uses poetry to embolden his uh, boarding school students to new heights of self-expression. It is directed by Peter Weir. It is written by uh, John Shulman. It stars Robin Williams as John Keating, Robert Sean Leonard as Neil Perry, Ethan Hawke as Todd Anderson, uh, and that's pretty much all that I got for you. So, dear, why don't you go ahead and take it away, since they've heard me ramble and wax poetic long enough. <laughs> wax poetic. It's almost like you planned that joke. Um... Okay, Dead Poet Society. Um, I had never seen this movie before or heard of it. This was not a staple in the household of, of my of my upbringing. Um, I'm definitely more familiar with Robin Williams's like comedic stuff than than his more dramatic things. I I'd say just kind of like as a broad scale. Your mom likes Patch Adams, is that correct? Um, I believe so. Um. I mean, I've never watched Patch Adams with her, so... <laughs> well, there we have it, I guess, also. <laughs> you <Fuck> know, me. <laughs> well, I mean, it's also, you know, the the availability of yeah. the item at the time. You know, back in the day, it was a lot harder to, to get access to something. You know, you either had to come on TV or you had to own it. No, for sure. So, um... And we did not own Patch Adams. Um, but... This this movie was 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 truly touching. Um, it was really hard at points, but like also very inspiring. And and some of the things that I loved about um, the school that we went to, honestly, you know, um, going to an arts program, you really felt um, you know taken care of, free to do what you want to do, though, like and figure out who you want to be as a person without you know any any true judgment from anybody. Um, and I thought that this was such a beautiful story of these young boys um, basically making personal decisions of whether or not they were going to allow somebody else to, um, to plan their lives for them. And each of their stories are different, and each of the, the things that they're fighting against is, is unique and individual, and they all approach it in different ways, but it's all thanks to the inspiration of this this amazing teacher played by Robin Williams, who does a phenomenal job. Um, but also, I think that the best comedians make um, the, mes- the best dramatic roles as well, because they, they know they know how to get to to the harder places which is comedy and make that an honest and true funny moment that like bringing something heavy to the table isn't going to be an outrageous um ask of them and um no i just i thought that this movie was was really it was really sweet and really um just one of those coming of age stories that really sticks with you and I understand now why it's been referenced so many times even without me knowing that it's been referenced so many times um but I honestly yeah I just I really enjoyed this movie a lot um it was great to see familiar faces and people that I'd also never seen before I loved the fact that um 
the goddamn Kirkwood Smith is still playing some guy who's just a crappy dad. <laughs> um, I love that that's his brand. He's like, I'm the mean dad. Like, look at my face. Um, I'm the grumpy one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's so funny, though, because also, like, I feel like if, if my dad were white, Kirkwood would play my father fantastically. No, that's fair. <laughs> but, you know, it would also be, like, a, a, a more cheery role for him as well, because my dad is not an asshole. Um, <laughs> well, and, and Kurtwood Smith played the bad guy in a few things as well when he was younger. Mm-hmm. So he, he, when he was younger, he had obscure face, so he was bad guy. Mm-hmm. And then as he got older, he just sort of transitioned into, like, grumpy dad. Yeah, exactly, exactly. He just looks like a sourpuss. Um, but that's the brand, you know? No, honestly, he does, a, he does a great job at him. Like, he really finds the ways that, like, you just want to hate him so authentically and so honestly. And, like, I just, um, <laughs> there's not a lot of people who can do that. <laughs> no. Um, so Dead Poets, you know, like I said, is is one that I had grown up seeing, um, you know, my mom loves Robin Williams, and she loved Robin Williams in this movie. And it was one of those that also growing up as someone who would watch, you know, AFI's top 100 films and retrospectives and, and that sort of thing. Uh, it, was, it was It was one that you would also <laughs> see a lot. And so it was one that I had an interest in seeing as well. And... You know, I loved it the first time that I saw it, and my appreciation for it has definitely grown over time. I think in a lot of ways, it feels very much like a novel. Mm, I think that that's fair. Uh, and I think that in some ways, the reason that it also sort of especially caught for a certain generation is that it hits a similar sort of itch to Catcher in the Rye. Mm-hmm. But I think that whereas the book, as you're reading it, can be somewhat devoid of humanity for Holden, you know, I think that this manages to find a lot of humanity for all of their boarding school mm-hmm. children. Uh, and so I think that it manages to also hit some of that that spirit, though, you know, of of that coming of age, of the weird fragility of that time, of being young but also being confronted with things like someone dying you know Mm -hmm. very unexpectedly because that's part of the thing that has holden all fucked up and so i i think that you see a lot of that similar tones and and texture sort of pulled into this and i think that it has a very novel feeling there are a lot of times when i'm watching this movie where i go and this is where there was going to be narration you know, that, that was, like, some mostly, like, an excerpt of whatever had been in the novel, you know, yeah, kind of a thing. Yeah. That filled in the gaps, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I felt it all of the time at certain moments in this movie. The English patient. Uh, yeah, a little bit like thing, that, yeah. Um, but that that's not necessarily a knock, but that is also just how it sort of... I think reads for me is that novel feeling, you know, mm-hmm. it feels like this movie should come with narration. No. Yeah. I mean, this movie feels very like epic and grand, almost like, um, oh 
God. Like, like Downton Abbey or something, you know, very like Emily Dickinson wrote this or something. You know, it's, it's very, very posh, very like polished, upper class society. We've got like Bill Pullman, you know, doing the narration for like the old man version of Ethan Hawke's character. No, yeah, Yeah. exactly, exactly. You know, it's very, um, stand by me with the, like, monologue at the end of, like, where they are now, you know, the Sandlot. Precisely, yeah. So, um, no, I get get what you mean. And, like, honestly, for it being two two hours, eight minutes, it doesn't feel No, it breezes through it. Yeah, it feels, um, you know, your attention is with this movie the entire time, and I think that it could have been worse but if it it was you know written or done by a different team, mm-hmm. I think that it would be a, a a longer slog if it if it wasn't so fucking charming. Well, and um, much like difficult parts in Shakespeare, you do to your point have to land the John Keating part because if you put a different actor into that position, does this movie work as well anymore? I don't know. As much as I love someone like Steve Buscemi, does Steve Buscemi work as much anymore as as John Keating? It would be, of course, a very different John Keating. Um, No, yeah. I'm not sure that you could do some of the things that you do to the same degree that they're able to do them with Robin. No, yeah, and honestly, um, I love Robin Williams. Um, I think that he's a phenomenal performer in every aspect. Um... But there are also things that are very much a Robinism, and I I don't get distracted by the things that that are very blatantly Robin about his performance at all. I think that they they blend really nicely into what he's doing. Because um, you know, Robin can be he can be goofy. He he loves to do voices. He loves to do you know outrageous body postures and all of this that and the other and not every performance needs that and I think that it's 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 sweet and fun that he he found a way to still bring the things that we love about him into this organically without it being overpowering to the character no absolutely um and speaking on the on the school premise of it I think that it does land an authentic depiction of youth and and boyishness and boyish exuberance um especially when you have like a group of just nothing but dudes living together Mm -hmm. um and i think that it captures a really authentic school atmosphere as well for the most part um what what is something i guess for you that you look for when you're watching something that makes you go this feels like a real high school or a real school in general versus like that would never no. <laughs> I don't know. Um, my my brain instantly was like business. They need to be doing business, and I was like, that's not specific enough. Um, <laughs> no, but um, actor you know, business, actor business. No, exactly, exactly. I was like, that's not that's not a helpful a helpful um note or or thing that I look for. Um, I think that in order to to portray like a like a school in film um or authentically i'm trying to think of all of the movies that i think really do like a school atmosphere really well um i don't know there's 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 usually always conflict of of some sort you know there are 
levels of what kind of students there are um you know they're the good students they're the bad students you know um even even in this really posh school there are still school students that are succeeding more than others um but at the end of the day i think that there has to be some kind of there has to be some kind of connection between these people i think that really holds it as a school because like at the end of the day they see each other every day all day for hours on end it's like it's like your co-workers you have to you know you talk to these people outside of just just doing your your work you know and if there isn't if there isn't that relatability between these characters and those friendships and those relationships um shown authentically i don't think that the relate the 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 environment would would land as as strongly you know it's the it's it's these boys growing up together literally you know and then the new kid and him finding his way into the 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 group and and opening up as a person as well because of this you know he doesn't have to be shy anymore he has friends you know um and that's why it's so tragic when he you know loses one of his friends that he just makes um but it's it's like it's like it's like mean girls you know to to do a completely alternative high school environment there still needs to be you know even though that's a comedy there still needs to be these relationships between the characters that are believable you know i have to believe that that janice and um oh my gosh what is his name um damien are are these weird outcasts who just don't give a fuck and i need to believe that the that the plastics have worked themselves into this exact thing you know because this is the only way that they've they've gotten this far is by these these traits that have brought them together. Well, and I think that Mean Girls also really lands well on the whole, if you go to a high school big enough, you know, a lot of boarding school movies, one of the upsides of boarding school movies is the intimacy of the boarding school movie. Mm-hmm. One of the downsides of the boarding school movie is it can feel almost too small or too focused. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you get to something like Mean Girls, I think they capture that whole, you go to a school big enough and you might not be really in many classes with the people that you consider your friends. You mm-hmm. know, Katie doesn't really have any classes with Regina. Um, she doesn't really have any classes with Damien. You know, she has a few here and there, but like they don't have the identical schedules. They're not traveling to all the same classes together. Um, and so I think that that's also something that you notice in movies that are doing a better or a worse job at capturing what's realistic to a school uh, and a schoolroom experience. No, no, I think that that's completely fair. Um, and I was trying to think of another boarding school movie and the, the first thing that I thought of was, uh, the Harry Potter franchise, especially like the first one. And I think that because it's so focused on you know our trio of our our group of people on their their disparate friend group outside of that you know with our random two other people that we like chunk in we're like ah neville and dean come on down oh a little bit of seamus too yay now we've got six kids um but that's really it and the rest of the school is even though it's you know filled with children after those several movies it just doesn't feel like a school anymore and honestly, it's because of the fact that they're they're missing all of the the outward noise that makes it feel like a like a busy bustling place. Because also, you know, I know that Hogwarts is a is a boarding school, but it still has I would assume the same amount of students 
throughout its entire, you know, every year should have the similar amount of kids because as kids go, kids come. So the fact that it doesn't feel like a school anymore is just because they start to cut the cast and cut the extras, honestly, a lot down to the point where, like, it's just focused on, on Harry and you almost forget that he's, like, in school. No, I, I definitely get what you mean. Um, so if you had to rate um, Dead Poet Society out of five, what would you give it? Honestly, I think that this movie is a is a truly perfect movie. I think that this is a five out of five movie for me. Um, I think that it is touching and sweet and and also completely relatable. And I think that it hits on all of the the right kind of beats for a movie like this. And I I also understand because it is a perfect movie why it gets it gets parodied so much. No, yeah. Um... No, you know what? I'm going to go with a five out of five as well. I think that it manages to also subtly, while being an incredible film with incredible, incredible performances by the young cast, which has great chemistry together. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the other things that does, of course, sell it is that all of our all of our young men have great chemistry together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the ensemble crackles mm-hmm. all of the time and all of their spontaneous moments you know feel organic Mm -hmm. um and i think that's part of the power of the movie for sure um is that they have very very talented uh young men handling the entire lead cast um but i think it's very well done i think it's very well structured i think that they also on top of making a great movie making a great story do also show how a lot of literature that i'm sure people think of as fussy doesn't have to be no yeah it was it was great to watch these kids like perform you know and get out of their shells with something that would see for most people seems so um classical and and you know bourgeois mm-hmm. you know um no it was just absolutely wonderful to to watch this 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 coming of age story i, I really enjoyed watching you know, these, these kids get to, to go out of their shell with something so abstract as like the, the focal point, but also I loved the, the, like the moral of this story is, is to allow a, to children to be children, but also that, you know, stepping outside of the box doesn't have to be a bad thing and being different isn't a negative trait. You should, you should embrace the things that make you different and, and love those things about yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just it's just such a really beautiful movie. Yeah, uh, and so I think that I'll give it a five as well. Moving on, we have Richard Linklater's School of Rock. Woo! Uh, School of Rock was released October 3rd, 2003. It runs an hour 49 minutes. It's rated PG-13. It's directed by Richard Linklater. It is written by Mike White. The cast is Jack Black as Dewey Finn, Mike White as Ned Schneebly, Adam Pascal as Theo, (laughs) Joan Cusack as Rosalie Mullins, Sarah Silverman as Patty DeMarco, and Miranda Cosgrove as Summer Hathaway. That's right. And the premise 
is after being kicked out of his own rock band, Dewey Finn becomes a substitute teacher of an uptight elementary private school, only to try and turn his class into a rock band. Um, I guess I'll go ahead and kick this bad boy off. Sure thing. Um, real quick side note. Uh, the reference earlier that I made to private schools being a gateway to the Ivy League, going back to Dead Poet Society very briefly, that's also the whole point of why they make in that speech, 70% of our graduates went on to the Ivy League, uh, is because, like, that's what the whole thing is riffing on. Exactly. Mm. Oh, okay. (laughs) Um, so, going back to School of Rock now, um... Fantastic. It's one of those that I saw growing up. I really think I really think that for some reason we watched this on VHS for the first time like at a block like we rented it from a blockbuster and watched it at home and I think that that's how I saw this for the first time or maybe it was a DVD. I don't remember. <laughs> um, but medium aside I remember watching it and just really thinking that it was so exciting. And this is, I think, one of the first movies that also really got me into Jack Black as an Mm -hmm. actor. I don't think that I had really seen a lot of his films before this point. Mm -hmm. This was also one of the first Richard Linklater movies that I saw. And so, for me, this was was a movie that I really, really loved. Um, And... It's always one that every time I go back to, I have just as good of a time every time, oh, you know, yeah. it's, it's n- a routinely enjoyable film. Um, and I think that that is because it knows that it is structurally riffing on, um, both Dead Poet Society and music man mm-hmm. you know it's sort of the lightning rod of the inspirational teacher but also the fraudster story mm-hmm. because the fraudster has to come in and razzle dazzle you and get you to buy into his idea mm-hmm. which is kind of exactly what a inspirational teacher has to kind of come in and do mm-hmm. and i think that it does this really great job of walking this fine line of of making dewey who could be a scummy character a likable one mm-hmm and I think that it's a very, very successful overall movie. And I think another part of that is also the fact that Richard Linklater really took the time to cast the thing right in terms of the, the youth cast as well. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. What about you? I love this movie. I think that this movie is a, is a hoot and a blast and just a, a razzle-dazzle good time, honestly. Um... I always, um, I always really enjoyed watching Jack Black movies growing up. I thought that he was really, um, I, I enjoyed his amount of energy, you know, um, as a, as a performer and a dramatic child at birth, um, you know, being able to, to be so flexible as a performer, I always really enjoyed, I, you know, so, so the fact that he's basically like a living cartoon was just, was really appealing to my small, fragile mind, um, but I remember, I don't remember when I actually, like, watched this movie. I don't remember, like, watching it in theaters, but I do remember watching it very, like, shortly after it coming out. 
Um, and I just fell in love with this movie. I wanted to be in this movie so bad. I wanted to be one of those kids. Because when this movie came out, um, I was 10. You were, like, probably 11 at the point. Um, but that's, that's neither here nor there. I just, I wanted to be in this movie so bad. I thought that this movie kicked ass. I, I loved the idea of being a performer. And this just was, like, the, the movie for, for me. Um, and it still, it still slaps. It's so good still. Um, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, there are times when you want to, you want to watch something that you, you grew up loving and you're like, oh God, but what if it's garbage now? Like, what if it's really racist and I didn't know because of my young, fragile child brain and the fact that the early 2000s was a different time, man. Um, but no, it still holds up. It still holds up great. Um, yeah absolutely fantastic and it still works as like an inspirational teacher movie as well it's just in a different kind of way but to your point this is very much like um dead poet society in the sense that it's this rebellious teacher energy bringing you know uh rebellion to these very molded and perfect children exactly and i think that that's i think that that's a really interesting storyline you know the <laughs> idea of bringing it's 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 like um it's like footloose you know bringing dance to the yeah, town exactly um and it's also poetry and music yeah yeah they're 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 brothers you mm-hmm. know they're they're completely the same just one has an actual beat and and you know music underneath it whereas the other one is just spoken but you can you can do it's it's the exact same structure for the most part of song lyrics to poetry um song lyrics gets to be cheaper sometimes because they get music added to them um justin bieber i am looking at you baby 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 oh um (laughs) but no i'm i to your point this is this is completely parallel with that kind of idea uh that you can express yourself through this medium um and and understanding the value of this form of of what you understand it you know it's because like in in dead poet society he's an english teacher and he focuses on poetry um because of its its variety and jack black is is a is a person who has been touched by the rock gods and just wants to rock and roll and sees these these very talented musician children but you know that's boring and let's spice it up because also i have uh my own kind of crappy plan in mind for for all of this and it it turns out good in the end guys but if you haven't seen it (laughs) but um no this movie is just this movie's super charming um and to your point like all of the kids are great um the cast is fantastic i love how they kind of like even parallel the the character tropes where it's like the really uppity child who's like the the perfect achiever child who you know needs to get the rod sho- uh, unshoved from their butt um then there's the there's the the kid who's who's being pushed pushed around by his by his parents but he just wants to to be an artist yeah zach is kind of a um an amalgam of of sort of neil and todd uh, yeah combined into one he's got the bad dad of neil but he has the shyness of the todd figure yeah and then needs to to be pulled out of this this whole 
um, uh, how, you know, shy. The drummers are Nawanda. Yes. That's right. That is right. That's right. Because he starts to, like, roll. He's like the bad boy one, you know? (laughs) And the bassist gets nothing to do. Um, (laughs) Oh, gosh. Other than Miranda Cosgrove, like the other the other girls in this cast don't really get a lot to do, which is so unfortunate. But that's also very um, early two thousands um, to now, to before, to always. <laughs> um, no, and I think that you know part of the authenticity of of what's on screen is the fact that they did get if I'm not mistaken, you know, musically talented children. And so that also is, of course, what you get to have on screen. You're not looking at kids who who are holding guitars that don't know oh, what the fuck they're doing with No, them. it is phenomenal to watch these kids play. You know, and so uh, you're... Because Richard Linklater took the the time and the effort to get kids or shape kids into being musically ready on screen, you also get the electricity of an authentic performance from these kids. They don't have to think about playing the guitar or playing the drums. You know, they do know how to do these things. No, yeah, and, like, to your point, I think that it is, um... Because you said shape, and I, I was thinking, I was, honestly, I think that it's going to be a little, a lot easier, actually, to, to get kids that can play, and then figure out how to get them to act. act yeah. Because I think that, you know, you can, you can have a little bit of, like, lightning in a bottle moment where, like, these kids are doing, that's why the bassist doesn't do anything, because I think that, you know, they were like, ah, lines for her is an iffy situation, let's just have her slap that like she doesn't even get a solo in any of the times when no, they're like yeah. giving people instrument solos. Homegirl is hitting those two notes on the bass and doesn't do nothing else. No, <laughs> you better believe it. That's right. <laughs> um, and so, but I think that you know all the time you see, even with movies with adult actors, where you see them and you're like, that's not what that guitar is doing. No, no, and you can also tell with the way that they they um, shot it. That these are actually them playing these notes as well. They're not trying to hide anything. No, 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 no. Yeah, that you are watching these kids actively play these notes, and like maybe, maybe the audio is 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 piped not piped in later. Yeah, exactly, because you know that's how movies work. But it's also still probably that child still playing it. Like it's it's yeah. not they. Why on earth would you go through the effort of of having these musician children but then hiring professional musicians to play over them like that's ridiculous no i get that let the talent shine um no i i and i think that joan cusack also does a tremendous job i think that again she takes the character i think that she takes a character that is a a a stereotype role that could have been trite in someone else's hands and plays the part very authentically and very warmly. Mm-hmm. I think she, it's a very genuine performance. It's a very genuinely funny performance. Oh, well, Joan Cusack is so hysterical, <laughs> honestly. I think she knows exactly who she is thinking of while she's playing this part and is like, this is, these are the funny things about this person for me. You know, like, I just, she she really nails it on the head. So good. Um, 
so honestly, like I really don't have a lot of a lot of notes for it. Um, I thought Mike White did a great job, you know, pulling down double duty, you know, writer and actor. Yeah, um, I mean, honestly, like for me, <laughs> and maybe this is maybe this is gonna ruffle somebody's feathers, but I don't really care right now. Um, my sore thumb in the entire cast was Sarah Silverman. Oh, okay. Like I just. It could have been. She was just all right for you. Like, yeah, like it could have been anybody else. It didn't have to be her. She wasn't funny at all, and I don't know if she was ever trying to be. But I just felt like that character was just sitting so hard and just being annoying that there was just nothing really likable about her. No, I understand that. And I feel it like never felt like her barbs with Dewey were ever playful. Yeah, exactly. To the point then that they turned negative. Like I felt like every time she was just like constantly being like me 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 like the the naggy girlfriend. Yeah, they really did like properly put her in a nag. Role. Yeah, you know, and I just I feel like if it was somebody else, it would have been a little bit less abrasive. That's fair. You know, well, she because also I think that that character is the same type of character as the um oh gosh, I don't remember her name at the moment, but the the mean girl in um, uh, da, 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 Legally Blonde, the the brunette. Yeah. You know, like, there are still likable things about her. She is still, like, our mean person. Was so. Judy Greer not available? I mean, honestly. <laughs> it was the early aughts. She was working then. Yeah. Put Judy in more things. Do put Judy Greer in Please. more things. Um, Judy Greer deserves it. So, what would you give... School of Rock out of five. Oh, even with Sarah Silverman giving me the, ugh, why are you here vibes. Um, I still think that this movie is a perfect film. I think that this movie is an absolute blast. It still kicks ass and is totally worth a five out of five. Five gold stars. No, I think that that's fair. Um, going back and touching on your point about comedic actors, you know, I think that a lot of comedians will typically pick up something to make a part of whatever their comedic persona is. Or they will take something that they already like and blend it into their comedic persona. Okay. And I think that what this, both of these movies did a great job with is taking each of the our comedic actors' comedic trades and comedic skills and using those as the bedrock of, of that teacher performance, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think that it allowed Robin Williams to do his voices great, and be energetic and wacky. And here, similarly, Jack Black got to be energetic and wacky, but also, of course, got to be as musically talented and able as he is. Yeah. Because he is such a truly talented musician. Honestly, um, oh gosh, okay, what is the, what's the movie that Jack Black did? Um, Tenacious D in the Pick of Destiny? That, yes. Uh, this had all of those vibes in it, but like, obviously, the child version. Even though it's rated PG-13. Okay, 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 sorry. One random, random toe out of, out of my original idea. Um, the fact that this movie is PG-13 and the other movie is PG is a purely because of the times. Because honestly, at the end of the day, I think that both of these movies should be rated PG-13. Because otherwise, if the other one gets to be PG, then this movie gets it's to either, be PG. It's either they need to be either or. Yeah, exactly. Either they're both PG or they're both PG-13. Because I think that it is ridiculous that School of Rock that has a mostly child-based cast, regardless of them doing, like, adult themes, um, <laughs> or whatever, um, I think that this movie is perfectly appropriate for children. Mm-hmm. 
And I completely don't remember my other original thought. Um, that's all right. But, yeah. Uh, totally fine. No, I think that... I think that they do... I think that uh, Jack does a great job in the film. Um, I think that it's... It's a kinetic performance. I think he's got great chemistry with the kids. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think that that's another thing is is that... I think that as a as an actor to be a teacher that is supposed to be heartwarming, you should also have chemistry with the children. And I think that you read that in both of these instances fully as well. And so I'm inclined to also give School of Rock a five as well. I think that this is a, a, a really great, enjoyable, energetic, fun, truly, f- you know, for everyone movie. No, yeah. Oh, I do remember my original thought. This is very much like the the kid version of Tenacious D, but also I I assume that either Mike White knows exactly how to write a Jack Black original song, or I feel like a lot of the music that it, that is performed in here is actually written by Jack. Yeah, very probably. Uh, I, I I probably could have and should have looked that up beforehand. M- I mean, my apologies, dear no, listener. No, 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 it's totally fine. Also, I love the fact that Adam Pascal is so high up on the list. Um, even you know though, why. Like, I mean, I do know why, but he's in like three scenes. His agent took care of him, don't you worry. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> we take care of our talent here. And so... He gets to be right after Joan Cusack. <laughs> um, before we jump into our last little uh, discussion, I do have, I guess, one one quick question. What what do you consider, um, what qualities do you look for in someone for you to consider them a good teacher? And name a teacher that you consider one of your, your uh, most inspirational teachers. Um, okay, what makes a good teacher? Um... I think an, um, a good teacher has has focus, has um, but is like malleable, you know, to the situation of of you know what your students need in that moment. But also, you know, is a, is kind of like the the lightning rod of the room. Like if if the if you're in a bad mood, you know, if you're not willing, if you don't want to teach, then why should I want to learn? Mm-hmm. You know, kind of thing. Like if you're not excited about coming in here and doing this, then, like, why should I be a part of this either? Um, and I think that also having an actual understanding of your, your subject as well is super important because you can be a teacher of a subject and not know anything about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I do a job all of the time, daily, that I go, I only know my portion of what I'm doing, and that's it. And I feel like that's that's a little sketch. But um, I think the teachers should totally know, you know, their subject through and through. So that way, when they do get those weird questions from students, they actually have an answer for them. Like, um, more more like Robin Williams's character than Jack Black's. But, um, you know, having this depth of this, this wealth of knowledge, um, I think that is, is always important as well and um i think that my most inspirational teacher the the teacher that i think about the most was probably uh mr calvar my chorus teacher in high school i was in awe of this man he was the most talented person not in like a he was the most amazing singer but he had a mind that understood music like nobody else's that i had ever seen and 
I I truly was was so impressed by him and the fact that I you know got to got to work with him closely for so many years. You know, I I knew exactly what I wanted to do when I was growing. I knew that I was in good hands as a performer with with this with this person with this man. Um, and like he was a he was a he was a great person to be around. Also, like in off hours as well, he was super personable, super funny. And you know, when I wasn't um, doing my best in in LA, he was right beside me the entire time. You know, so I think that I think that. Um, being somebody, uh, being a reliable, trustworthy force is also very important with, with being a teacher, you know, because at the end of the day, outside of the house, you're the only per, you're the, the, you're the next adult that this child has in their circle, you know, and sometimes you get the things that the parents don't get to see. And, you know, I think that that should be taken with, with, with respect and with honor and you know I think I think that those are the things that make <laughs> that make a good teacher <laughs> no I I'm in a, a lot of agreement with what you said um you really should know your subject as thoroughly as you as you humanly possibly can um and you should always be trying to learn more about your own subject you should mm-hmm. definitely be trying to remain ahead of any student that you have in the future. Um, I think you need to also... You need to be able to handle hard moments with grace. You know, you don't have to be perfect, but you do have to sometimes, to your point, deal with things that other parents don't have to deal with, you know, um, with their child. Um, You sometimes have to deal with the the meeting point of children and a lot of different temperaments coming together in a very particular environment. Um, and some of those dynamics don't mesh well. You have to be able to read a room, you know, and I think that's another thing about being a comedian, you know, and playing a teacher. You have to be able to read a room to Mm -hmm. an extent. You have to be able to spot who's doing, you know, who, who communicates with who better than, than others. What's a, what's a bad pairing of people. It's a very complicated job, um, that requires essentially also at the end of the day, a lot of plate spinning. And so you also have to be someone who's capable of keeping all of those plates going. Mm Mm-hmm until the moment that you really can, you know, unstack them. And if you've done things really well, then, you know, you should be able to, in a perfect situation, again, unstack them neatly. Um, But the issue is that it's also currently a very fraught job, a very underfunded job. I mean, the school that I was working at, when we had a smaller population of students, had four English teachers per grade level. Whereas when I got there, we had a larger population and there were only three teachers per grade level. So, you know, it's it's hard to be an effective teacher in that kind of environment. Um, for me, an inspirational teacher um, is Mr. Yeager. Um, he was 
uh, near retirement age teacher that I had in the sixth grade. He was a math teacher. He was incredibly smart. He had been around since football was played with a, a leather helmet and a single bar across your face. Um, he had served in, in the war. Um, he was a really fascinating, really intelligent, interesting man who did incredible dry erase art. The most immaculate landscapes that you ever saw. He would spend all day making them. They would sit up for about a day, and then it would be gone. Oh my gosh, that's fantastic! Um, I was not prepared. It was almost Zen, you know. On a, you know, it was almost sort of Buddhist in, in principle on a certain level. Um, really fascinating stuff. Uh, and he was a very patient man who also, like, when he saw students were struggling knew how to sit down and help them and would reach out to parents and and he was a trooper um he he had a student um like dislocate his arm and like do some soft tissue damage um when he tried to break up a fight um at his old age and oh my gosh um he taught through the rest of the year because he didn't want to take the time off for the surgery uh, and so he taught through the remainder of the year. Um, and he was a really, he was a really cool guy. I liked Mr. Yeager a lot. And so that's, that's, I think my, my inspirational teacher. And he saw that I was having a hard time and he helped me, um, really get a better grip on, on math. And like, if you want an example of like great math teaching versus bad math teaching, um, Eighth grade, I had a teacher, or sixth grade, I had a great teacher that I loved. Got along with him great. He worked hard. He worked with me. Incredible teacher. Seventh grade, had a woman that I just ran headlong into. And it was just a full personality clash, you know? And you, everyone has, I think, those stories of teachers that they do just have those full-blown, we're-not-jiving mm-hmm. sort of experiences with. And I could be a really stubborn shit. Um, and so I, I dug my heels in hard, and um, I ended up having a terrible time in seventh grade math. Um, yeah. So <laughs> that's the uh. kind of varied experience that you can have, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a hard job. And, and you know, I certainly don't, don't blame... Um, any teacher that starts and then leaves because it's a it's a difficult job um but yeah what shit pay Mm. but that's kind of all that we have for for that part of the discussion now we'll move on to the news portion which actually we're recording on wednesday and we're going to record a little bit of the show tomorrow because what started as a simple announcement shocking but simple announcement of Batgirl is no longer being released turned into a scuttlebutt of maybe HBO Max is being completely canceled. Oh. And so it's a very developing situation. There is supposed to be an earnings call, uh, a, a report, you know, to investors tomorrow where they are going to talk about some of what has been going on. Um, But to fill y'all in, essentially what happened is it was announced that Batgirl, it was broken uh, in, I want to say the New York Post, 
that um, Batgirl was not going to be released. And um, in any capacity, not theatrically, not in HBO Max, it was decided that it was just going to be shelved. And that shocked a lot of people, and it set a lot of um, worry and concern. And then again, there was this sudden rumor that HBO Max was apparently going to potentially just be gone. Um, And then today, they went and they removed six HBO Max original films off of the platform, including Seth Rogen's An American Pickle. So... Not really sure what that means moving forward for a lot of stuff. Again, there are rumors right now that HBO will continue to be a channel that you can get cable, you know, a pack, a cable package for. Well, that just sounds like death for them. And all of their HBO content is going to then be a tab in Discovery Plus, and they'll no longer make any HBO Max original content. All of that money is going to now go toward continuing to make reality TV sort of content for the Discovery app. Um, So it's a very uncertain situation. This might mean the end of things like Peacemaker, the show. It might mean the end of things like Harley Quinn. So it's very, very uncertain what all is is happening. There are rumors that like 70% of the staff is going to be let go. It's, It's a real... And, and no one understands, if you go on social media and you follow industry insiders and industry people, no one understands what the fuck is going on right now at this particular point in time. No, yeah, it's just a really, it sounds like a conundrum here because like at the end of the day, I think that of the apps that we actually own, we use HBO Max surprisingly the most out of all of them. And it's doing really really well it has some of the best original content it has some great original movies like hbo max is legitimately doing great right now as far as the streaming wars go and so people assumed that them buying it was because they wanted to continue that Um, but so far it seems that they're wanting to just hawk what they can melt the thing down um, pay off some of the taxes of the purchase with what they make. That's one of the rumors about what they're going to do with the, the Batgirl movie is that they're writing the taxes off on it, which will make it so that they legally can never release it or sell it to another studio because they took the tax right off on it. And so they're then going to use that for part of their tax bill toward the purchase of HBO. And who's they? Discovery copy well the funny thing is it's like discovery really thinks that like we care about discovery's live action stuff that there there are a lot of people who are saying that if they go down this route they are going to just completely unsubscribe from all forms of hbo in full because like this is ridiculous yeah so we'll we'll be taking a little bit of a pause in our recording and finishing up the show uh, tomorrow when we know a little bit more. So today's, uh, investor call, you know, happened. It was at 4.30 p.m. That was why we sort of did this split recording. Such a weird time to do something. (laughs) It's almost like they don't really want people to know about it. 
And, um, the big reveal is that everything has been clarified. So, in summer, I guess not everything, but mostly, in summer 2023, Mm -hmm. HBO Max and Discovery Plus will both cease to be, and there will be a new merged service. I hope they have some weird, like, celebrity couple name name merging of the of the sources. HBO Discovery. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all of this will be worth it for that. <laughs> um, and there will be scripted and uh, non-scripted or reality content. Um, so essentially, Discovery Plus and HBO you know, will still be operating, but it'll now be under one umbrella. Okay. Um, the person who's going to become the head of Scripted is a current uh, HBO person. Okay. So they're getting brought up. Um, and uh, they'll continue on to also have have non-scripted content and so that's kind of where they're at right now with things um and they have been going through and sort of trimming the fat and reshaping the company to their vision and i mean trimming the fat not in in the sense that anything should have actually been cut but i mean trimming the fat from their perspective um so they've gone through and and now started the process of reshaping Okay. So that's where we currently stand. Um, and I guess I guess we can then take the purge of certain pieces of content also on a certain level as um, a disavowing of that as like a part of the brand. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the update for everyone. Um, it's interesting. Uh, we'll see how well it works. Um, if it works at all. If. But don't worry. HBO can just be sold again. This is like the, the third owner in a decade. It's so sad. Because it had been AT&T. Mm-hmm. Before that it was... Just Time Warner, I thought. I think it was Just Time Warner. Uh, and so then it was AT&T... And now it's, of course, Discovery. So I like the Discovery of all channels has enough clout that it's like I can afford HBO. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's a, that's a that's a bold move, Discovery. Who knew? Coming up from behind. <laughs> well, um, it's it's certainly a real a real shakeup of the whole landscape, and we'll see how well it works. Um, Discovery has, of course, never really handled the theatrical market in any kind of cons like hard concept. Um, no, it's fine. I mean, the the whole thing's just going to be Disney eventually, anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Um, so, but it's it's definitely worth following to continue to follow um, as things continue to develop because this is definitely not the end. Um, so, I would definitely urge people who advocate for physical media you know this is this is definitely a a key point you have now had a a company go through and decide that entire filmed movie 
won't be release released has has gone through and pulled six movies off of their streaming platform so that way uh you know they can start to reshape it and sure they're available on VOD but does that last forever so to all the people who have sort of asked why it's it's worth buying something when it's right there on the streaming service this is why is because at the end of the day you can buy a hard copy of something and own it and then the only way that someone is going to take it back is literally coming in and physically taking that back <clears throat> and so um this is a, a welcome reminder that, that physical media still matters, is still relevant, um, and is worth preserving. Because in this, in this present state, uh, fuck it, man, what's tangible? No, yeah, nothing's real. That's fine. Let's find so... for a while until you start realizing it. Um, when, when you realize eventually that you own nothing, what are you left with, right? When everything is a subscription to a varietal. Or you think you own something, but then the platform decides that they're, they, they're going to get rid of it. So it just, it just get wipes, Mm -hmm. wiped from your device. Yeah. And so this, this is, this is the importance of ownership of certain things of the fact that it shouldn't just be left up to corporations who owns a piece of our culture. Because at the end of the day, we should all think about art in some capacity as a piece of our culture. And if a corporation can just decide that we don't deserve it anymore, or it's more profitable for them to not have it available to us, they will strip it from us. And that's erasure of people's hard work, of someone's expression, and that's ultimately, at the end of the day, completely ridiculous. And if any of those people who are all for the Snyderverse or at least the return of the Snyder Cut care about this kind of thing, then they should also be as embroiled in this fight. That's right. Use your troll powers for good this time. Exactly. Because this is the same kind of thing. This Mm -hmm. is the same kind of mindset at the end of the day. So... That's all that we have for you, now that we've given you a little bit of a, a, a proper update on that bit of news. Um, I don't have anything left for the viewers. Check out all of our summer movie episodes. Um, and come back next week when we jump into our next school stereotype, jocks and cheerleaders. Dear, do you have anything else for the listeners? Um... Gosh darn it, nay. Um, <laughs> but that's okay. Um, live your best lives, people. Have a good time, and we'll see you next week. Pinky promise. Yeah. You know what? And I do have one last thing. 
go out. I don't care if it's from a bargain bin. I don't care if it's from a secondhand shop. I don't, I don't care where you go and get it from. Go out and buy a movie. That movie that you've thought about having. That movie that you wonder why you don't have it. Go out. Buy a movie. And that's my final message to you, dear listener. Yeah, it's a liberating experience to use the money that you've earned for something other than a savings account. Who knew? Well, and, and, and it's also just good to, to have something that you love, something that you connect with, something that, that is emotionally resonant that then you can go back to and access regardless of any subscription, as long as you've got power and a player. Mm, Power and a player indeed. So that's my final message to you, dear listener. Um, I hope that you enjoyed the show. Um, I hope that you had a teacher that was good. Uh, You know, if you have a teacher that you're still in contact with, also go and reach out to them. I'm sure that they would appreciate it. Um, Come back next week. We'll talk to you guys later. Bye. Bye!